Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Peggy Larson. Peggy was born in North Dakota on a ranch or farm with cattle and grain. She attended vet school at Ohio State and got an MS at UC Davis. She also received a law degree from Vermont Law School. She was both a large and small animal veterinarian. She started the National Spay-Neuter Coalition to support veterinarians who are trying to start spay clinics. She works nationally and internationally with the media and individuals on animal issues. She did a five-minute cat spay video, which is used internationally to train veterinarians and works with law enforcement on animal abuse cases in Vermont. Peggy, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Well, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. You have a very long bio. You've been in school quite a bit. How did you get specifically interested and started in helping cats and animal welfare? Well, I've always liked cats, and I've always been involved, no matter which state I lived in, in um, investigating animal cruelty work. Many of it was horses. Some of it was dogs and cats. But the way I got started in Vermont was um, my husband was a veterinarian at a local hospital here, and there was a lady, uh, Kathy Ludwig, who kept bringing in cats to be spayed. She was rescuing them. And it was costing her quite a bit of money, even though they gave her a discount. So my husband said, why don't you talk to my wife? He said, she's really interested in, in cats and maybe you two can come up with something and see if we can't get this done a little cheaper. So Kathy got a hold of me and it wasn't, uh, you know, maybe three, four days later, the next cat, well, it was a longer than that because I had to get uh, equipment. But I started it at my house and we used to spay and neuter here at the house. She'd rescue the animals, I'd spay and neuter them, and then she'd find homes for them. So we did this for about a year and then we were getting, we were getting busy. (laughs) And my husband then retired from Brown Animal Hospital. So he and I rented a place over in uh, the neighboring town, Colchester, and we set up our first spay and neuter clinic. Initially, the veterinarians weren't particularly happy with us, at least some of them weren't, but uh, we assured them that we were only going to do poor people's animals and that we weren't going to be competing against them. So that's how we got started. Uh, We used to do a few dogs now and then. We did about 200 dogs, but dogs were not the big problem here in Chittenden County. The problem was uh, was cats, and they were in lumber yards and gas stations and you name it, dumpsters, and it was a pretty bad life for these poor kitties. So when we started the clinic, uh, Kathy then became my technician. She was a registered nurse. She's really the one that really started this. And uh, then we had to hire some more people because we kept getting busier and busier. And at the end of the time, after 23 years, when we closed, we had done 78,000 cats. So we really took a chunk out of the excess cat population here in Chittenden County. We had two people that used to come over from New York, and they used to bring animals over. We gave them specific days, and they'd sometimes come over with 30 apiece. So we did uh, some work for New York also. Uh, do you say that very lightly, 78,000 cats later? I mean, that's an impressive number. 
over all that period of time, you seem to have developed a special technique that helped create a five-minute cat spay. How did you learn this technique and or develop it as something that you crafted over time or you learned from others? No, my husband, um, he passed away about six years ago, but my husband was a good surgeon. He was a big six-foot 200-pound guy with big hands, but that guy could do surgery like you wouldn't believe. So he was the one that started it back when we had our large animal practice back in North Dakota. Well, we did small animals too, but it was basically focused on large animals. So he was the one that started it. And then fast forward to the spay and neuter clinic, and I learned from him and then perfected the technique a little bit more. But he gets all the credit for that. He was the one that started it. And he was, as far as I know, he was doing this before anybody else was. There's guys like Jeff Young and Mark Chamberlain. These are friends of mine, veterinarians. They did it early on, too. But my husband was the one that did it back in the 70s. Were you both doing pediatric spay-neuter at that time, too? Yes. The youngest cat I ever did was on an Indian reservation in Montana. It didn't have its eyes open yet. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, well, you know, it it was either the cat was going to get spayed and somebody would care for it or it was going to get dumped out and become dog food, you know, because there were so many stray dogs out there. So I said, what the heck, I'm going to try it. And it worked. Um, We did okay with it. In the pre-show interview, we were talking a little bit about unique experiences. And one of those you were referencing going to Montana. Would you like to share with our listeners a bit more about your efforts out there? Yeah, that was pretty interesting. Uh, There was a lady out there, and I can't recall her name at the moment. It was back in the 90s. She saw that there was a problem on the, the Native American reservations out there and wanted to do something to help these animals. So she got together with myself and with Mark Chamberlain, Jeff Young, and we set up this mobile spay venture and spayed, uh, oh my God, we did it uh, four years. And we we hit uh, many of the reservations there and, and really tried to diminish the number of cats that were, you know, living terribly. It was fun. It was fun. It was quite an experience. Do you happen to know if that program continues with other volunteers? The last I heard, which was back in the mid-2000s, it wasn't continuing anymore because now veterinarians were picking up the slack there. and They didn't need outsiders anymore. That was the nice thing about when I started the National Spay and Neuter Coalition. Many veterinarians were denigrated by other veterinarians for trying to do this. And Because the American Veterinary Medical Association had a policy that said spay and neuter doesn't work and poor people don't use it anyway, these veterinarians who did not want spay clinics in their area would use that to impose restrictions on these spay vets that included x-ray machines, ultrasound, things that you would never need in a clinic, but you were, you know, nice, nice way to keep them out. So... I started the National Spay and Neuter Coalition to begin to help some of these veterinarians to be able to set up spay and neuter clinics. And meanwhile, I took on the AVMA. Uh, I had a friend, Peter Marsh, over in uh, Concord, New Hampshire, who was a lawyer. I figured, uh, you know, two lawyers and on this, maybe we could change their stupid minds. But anyhow, uh, he and I rewrote the policy on spay and neuter, and it took two years for the American Veterinary Medical Association to accept it. The AVMA is very slow in accepting any kind of change. They still support gestation crates, hens in batteries. The AVMA is not an anti-cruelty organization. You know, I've talked to several people in this show in learning about advocacy and how to become an advocate, even if you aren't a lawyer per se, but how can you get your voice heard? And so much of it, even in some of these larger organizations, you know, is through 
advocacy, you have to, with either legislators, politicians, and then these other larger organizations, you really do have to sort of rally the troops in order to be able to impact change. And I had one person say to me, you know, the squeaky wheel does get the attention. So the more letters you have written and the more emails you have sent, it really does uh, help create change. So unfortunately, even though it may sound on paper, it's like, a rationally good idea, and why wouldn't you want to do this? Unfortunately, it seems like there's other forces at work there. Yes, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, you have one, AVMA, which was a male-dominated, entrenched organization that was uh, really basically uh, animals were here to be used and to make money with, and it's been hard to change them. But as over time, as women have become more prominent in veterinary medicine, we're hoping to do uh, more changes. The Humane Society of the United States is trying to get them to change the gestation crate issue. There's a lot of power behind HSUS, and I'm kind of hoping that they will be able to affect this. And now let's take a moment to listen to a few words from our sponsors. Accidental Exiles by Bruce Perry. Jesse McAllister, a young Texan and Iraq war vet, escapes to Europe where he seeks a new direction and to heal his desert wounds. Wandering the streets of Ascona, Switzerland, he meets and falls in love with a beautiful Italian waitress named Sonia Altarelli. Since the horrors of combat he encountered with a boyhood friend, Jesse will have nothing more to do with war. This story is his farewell to arms. Check out Accidental Exiles on Amazon.com today. (coughs) Are you starting to think about that special holiday gift? Why not give the gift of a Community Cats podcast branded t-shirt, coffee mug, bag, or other item? This is the perfect way to spread the word about helping Community Cats. The proceeds from the sales will go to support the Community Cats podcast and the Community Cats Grants program, which helps small groups grow their fundraising programs to be able to fund more spay-neuter programs for free-roaming cats. Go to www.communitycatspodcast.com and click on our shop button in the menu bar today to get that perfect community cat gift right now. Thank you, everybody, for supporting the show. If somebody was thinking about starting a clinic today, there's, I would say, two main models out there. There's what's called the Humane Alliance Clinic Model And then there's also a model, somewhat of a model for mobile clinics, or there is a trend towards mobile spay-neuter clinics. Do you have any leanings one direction or the other, or have an impression of if you were starting a clinic today, would you just launch out on your own, or would you go to some of these resources? Well, there is a third one that you can add to that, too. Becky DeBolt is a veterinarian here, and uh, I also did this. My husband and I did this, too. But we would pack up our footlockers with all of our equipment and we would go to the Humane Society in Derby Line or a humane organization in Brookfield, Vermont. We call this MASH units because we're mobile. We can go wherever we want to go. Uh, So if you throw that in the mix, each one of those has a niche. Each one of those is providing the service that these animals need. We had a stationary clinic and then did the MASH model. You have to look at the population. You have to see what you've got. For us, like a big city, like, or, uh, you know, the big county that we live in that's pretty populated, having a stationary clinic worked real well. My friend Mark Chamberlain worked on a uh, mobile clinic down in Connecticut, and that worked very well. They would go to different shopping centers and stuff like that, and they were very successful. And then these MASH units were very successful too. So 
it depends on what, what you have to work with. The Humane Alliance, I know Carla there, uh, we were kind of instrumental in, in helping them get going with our technique and so forth like that. So we were in contact a lot back when I was running this band neuter coalition. Those girls do a great job there. It's Asheville, North Carolina, visited them here a couple of years ago. Very good job. So anything, any anything that you can use to get these animals fixed is worthwhile. One thing I would say probably too is the the MASH clinic, and I could be totally wrong, but my sense is if funding is a question or if you want to just start testing the waters, maybe the MASH style clinic is the first step. A Humane Alliance clinic and the mobile clinics both can be quite pricey in their startup numbers. When I last looked at Humane Alliance, I think an organization needed to have close to $200,000 sort of in their pocket in order to sort of qualify for their mentoring and their support and and that kind of thing. Mobile clinics are certainly not cheap, but yet they are effective because they can move around. And, you know, the team program down in Connecticut. Oh, yes. I know those people well. They've done well with their mobile clinics. And then um, the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society that I was with for about 20 plus years, you know, they have two mobile clinics, two catmobiles that handle pretty much Eastern Massachusetts. And they are a lot of fun, but uh, yeah, they are pricey. They, you know, can be between $150,000 and $200,000 to purchase. So if you're an organization that's thinking about starting out in the beginning, you know, the MASH style clinic is good. The other thing is it's we, we do still do a MASH clinic at the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. We do one Sunday a month where we get the donated services by veterinarians and technicians so that we offer it's a fully free day. It's all free for free roaming cats. So we have a sort of a combo package within our organization for those two models. I think that the important thing is to get going, do it, commit to it, and bring that spay-neuter capacity to your community Don't just sort of sit back and say, oh, well, I could never do this. There are models out there that you could do it in an affordable way. That's correct. Tell me a little bit more about the National Spay-Neuter Coalition. You started it. When did it start and what's it doing right now? Well, it started in the late 1990s. And then I ran that for about five years till we got some of these things started. And then I stopped with the newsletter and all that stuff. And it had served its purpose. And by that time, there was enough of us around that uh, if anybody wanted to start, our emails were, you know, everybody knew us. Uh, it was We were pretty well nationally known. Uh, Mark Chamberlain, Jeff Young. Facebook came out eventually. There's a lot of ways to communicate on Facebook. There wasn't a need for it anymore. We were there to help these veterinarians, and they knew about us. So I let it go. You know, it, it, was, it, it became obsolete. Well, and that's good. It's a really, it's a, it's nice to know that when you have an organization and you have an objective with that organization, it's nice to know why you've started it, keep with that mission, and then be willing to say, okay, we've achieved our objective and now it's no longer needed and it's able to go into the sunset. So it takes a good eye because there are a lot of people that have a hard time letting go of things that they've started too. Yeah, sometimes it just gets time to move on and you realize that and you move on. I've done that with, uh, I've been fighting the uh, rodeo animal abuse issues for years. Uh, as a as a young teenager, I was a bronc rider in a rodeo back in North Dakota, uh, saw the insides of, of how this uh, so-called sport or entertainment works and, and been fighting it for years. Uh, internationally, uh, New Zealand, Australia, uh, England, uh, France, and uh, here. 
Steve Hindi from Shark is a great animal advocate. He's done some wonderful things uh, to bring this animal abuse to public attention. You are involved in so much. You're all over the world. So I'm going to ask you a question. In terms of thinking about community cats and what you've seen over the last 20 to 30 plus years, and then looking forward, how have things changed for community cats and where do you think things will be for community cats 10 years down the line? Well, it's hard to know. You know, Becky Robinson started the uh, trap, neuter and release program. Uh, That's been fairly successful. It's difficult to keep the animals vaccinated sometimes for rabies and that sort of thing. But if you have a stable colony and they're all neutered and spayed, of course, it, it tends to keep the other animals out. In other words, you have a stable community of cats and then the others move on and hopefully you can find where they're congregated and then do them. I think we're still not quite there. Dogs still seem to have more perks or they seem to, to do better than cats. Cats are still in some, some areas pretty much throwaway. One of the problems we have here in Vermont and in any state that allows trapping is uh, a lot of these poor cats uh, have been caught in traps uh, that are, you know, free roaming. Uh, they're killed generally. Uh, I've amputated legs and uh, uh, treated wounds on animals that have wound up in traps. So you kind of have to look at your community and then just see how safe these animals are in their cat colonies. And some there's still some guys out there that like to use cats for target practice. I took a cat in one time that somebody shot right through his chest with a bow and arrow. A lot of cruelty out there. And so if we can keep the numbers down and keep these cats in a colony, it certainly is safer for them. Yeah, I have to agree. I moved to Vermont three years ago and one of my neighbor's cats was shot just about six months ago. And it was extremely surprising to me, but maybe maybe not so, I guess. And it's one of the reasons why I decided that my cats would be indoor only cats when we moved here. You'd think that coming from suburban Massachusetts, you know, an indoor outdoor cat might have a rougher time in Massachusetts where you're closer to more roads and all that stuff. But I think that the risks are in a way greater up here. So so I decided to say that my cats were going to be indoor cats up here. Yeah, that, that's probably a smart move. Also, we have a quite a coyote population now. Uh, I see them in our back field. I have about seven acres where I live here. And uh, occasionally, you know, I see coyotes a lot of times about nine o'clock at night. I hear them howling out there. So I'm pretty nervous. When, when my cats are out, I'm generally out with them or keeping an eye on them because uh, they're, they're pretty good. They stay uh, pretty close to home and they, they go out, uh, you know, like around noon. They, I never let them out after two o'clock. So it's got to be in the morning. It's got to be short time. And they're pretty good. Uh, if I call them, they come in. But yes, there are dangers here. Every community has a different set of of dangers. Here it's, you know, trapping and shooters and bow and arrow people and stuff. Massachusetts, it's roads. It's like you said. Yeah, cats are still unfortunately kind of considered disposable in this country. And uh, I I don't know. We're we're gaining. Uh, We have a ways to go yet. And I do think that there are are some areas where, you know, trap neuter return is – more appropriate. The environment is better. And so it isn't we TNR everybody all the time. I think you do have to be much more aggressive in higher risk areas. And and I do wish we kind of, in our mapping of our cat colonies, we almost had a mapping capability to map, you know, sort of this is a 
more of a danger zone versus this is not so much a danger zone. And, and it changes. It's not always going to be the same because the urban, suburban, rural environment changes too with the people as the people change. But I think it would be helpful for us to dive a little deeper into the environment and not just sort of have a blanket policy, you know, this is what we do, which I think is somewhat what we're talking about with return to field, which is just sort of, you know, any community cat that comes into a shelter gets spayed or neutered and then gets returned back to where it came from. And I think that that's good for some reasons, but I also think that it may not be the best alternative for cats in all cases. You know, we used to get them in like that. Sometimes people still up here dump these poor cats on farms. The farmer's got, you know, 25 cats. He doesn't want to do with them all. He'll bring them in. Well, the good ones do. Some of the other ones just shoot them, but bring them in. And if that cat is the least bit sick or is the least bit injured, or if that guy doesn't want them back, and these are feral cats, I put them down. I feel Mm. that for those poor cats to go back there to a place where they're not wanted, sometimes uh, cats have taken eyes out and all that sort of thing, you know, with uh, uh, herpes virus and that sort of thing. You evaluate what kind of life that this animal has. I don't do euthanasia well because I absolutely love animals, but you have to kind of balance to make sure that that cat's going to be all right going back to where he goes. And then the other option is barn relocation if you do have that opportunity. You know, you only have that opportunity, you know, if you've been aggressively spaying, neutering throughout the community and then you have those options becoming available. Yeah, we did that. We we found places. We worked pretty close with the Humane Society. Kathy Ludwig is a gold star cat person. (laughs) She's just phenomenal. She's phenomenal. It was such a pleasure to work with her. She still is, uh, if I find out there's a cat running loose somewhere, depends on the community that it's in. I have people that I can call to say, you know, you have a stray cat in this area and and, uh, it, it doesn't take 30 seconds and they're out there with a trap or whatever to get them. We have in northern Vermont anyway, we've got some really good people here. So, Peggy, if people are interested in finding out more about you, asking questions, how can they find you? Well, I'd give them my email address. Uh, That's the best way to get a hold of me. It's meowvet1 at gmail.com. That's M-E-O-W-V-E-T and the number one at gmail.com. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? I would like to say that what you're doing here with your podcast is fabulous. Um, I like to, I really like to see somebody that's uh, interested to to get the word out that there is that you know there is help for these stray cats or help for your own cat if you're poor. We used to do them for free sometimes if the person you know didn't have any money. It's uh, we didn't have a grants or anything like that, but it didn't matter. The purpose was to uh, give spay as many cats as we possibly could. That's the name of the game is to get them in when we're running the mobile clinics. I used to say I want to just get as many fannies in the bus, you know. The name of the game is getting as many cats in and spayed and neutered as possible. So I appreciate your your sentiment on that one. And obviously, that's the way you felt with 78,000 cats later. Peggy, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show, and I hope we'll have you on in the future. Well, you're very welcome. I was honored. I'm pleased. I'm glad to try to help get the word out. Uh, Yes, if you would like to contact me in the future, I'd be very willing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats.